If you're worshiping with us online, we are so thankful uh, that you are here. I know that, that you all want to be able to be here with us, and you're taking care of yourself, and you're, you're just trying to be healthy and be wise, and I want you to know that you are not forgotten, and you are loved. And for all of you that are here in person this morning, man, it is good to see you. It is good to preach to real faces and to see my flock with my own two eyes, and I don't take that for granted, especially in these strange, strange, strange days. So if you'll remember back where we were last week in Psalm 63, we're really going to pick up where we left off. We saw the first third, and this week we're going to see kind of the last two-thirds of the psalm together. And if you'll remember where we are, David is in a season of hardship. David has essentially lost everything in his life that was important to him. That his son Absalom had sought to ascend to the throne, to overthrow his dad. And he had done that really by being deceptive, by being a liar, by lying and and hanging out at the gate of David. And as people would come in for judgments, telling them that David didn't have time for them, that David wasn't concerned for them. And how nice would it be if you had a king that gave a rip? How nice would it be if you had a king that would actually hear your struggles and actually hear your needs? And over time, Absalom, David's son, is able to win over the hearts of Israel. And winning over the hearts of Israel, he ascends falsely to the throne without the anointing of the Lord. And David is essentially banished from his own family. So he loses his kingdom. He loses his son. He loses his allies. He loses his military. He loses his palace, his prosperity. Essentially everything that you would have summed up that would have made David's life significant is gone. And now he is left languishing in the wilderness, hiding in the desert from his own boy. And many of you can relate to that season, right? Many of you, if not all of you, know what it is to live in the wilderness. You know what it is to live and feel as though everything important in your life and everything significant in your life has been peeled away. And some of you, some of you are probably in that season today. That right now, as I speak, you're sitting there and you're going through all of the losses in your mind. You're going through all of the disappointments in your life. You're going through all of the different ways that your life has not met your expectations. And if you were honest, you would say, I can identify with David. I know how David feels. I know what David's thinking. I know all the thoughts that are in his mind. But do you remember what we said last week? God will not waste the wilderness in your life. God will not waste the wilderness in your life. In fact, I think what we see in Psalm 63 is we see that that God's that the wilderness serves in God's kingdom to clarify God's love in our lives. That the wilderness serves in God's kingdom to clarify the strength of God's love, the resolve of God's love, the satisfaction of God's love. And so we're seeing a couple of different ways that God's love is clarified for us in the wilderness. Last week, what we saw is that thirsty lives crave satisfying love. Thirsty lives crave satisfying love. And the first thing that I want you to see this week is that lonely nights rest in active love. That lonely nights rest in active love. Notice there in verse uh, in verse. Six, it says, when I remember you upon my bed 
and meditate on you in the watches of the night. That the, the emphasis there is at the end of the day. Remember last week when we started in verse 1, we said that word eagerly could be translated as early, right? So, so the first third of the psalm is really focused on the morning time, on that first part of the day, waking up. And I wake up thirsty, I wake up hungry, I wake up, I wake up yearning for something, so for a movement of God, for the deliverance of God, for the hope of God. I, I'm, I'm craving to be satisfied by the Lord. Well, the second part of the psalm, the second movement in the psalm, really moves us from the morning time to the night time. And I want you to think about what that would mean for somebody who's on the run. Somebody who's on the run. You have David here, and he's on the run from his son under the threat of his life. You know what happens at night? Night is what? It's when you are most vulnerable, isn't it? Night is when you're most concerned about an attack. Night is when you really have to stay and be still and, and lay down and rest, that you, you can't continue to press on. And so night is the opportunity for your, for your enemy to make inroads to you. It's when you are, are most exposed. It's when you seem most lonely. And so it's really strange what David says. It's really strange what David says. When you, when you consider being in the middle of the night, in the middle of the wilderness with someone pursuing you, with a whole army of people trying to take you out, think of what David says about the night. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. That, that in other words, my soul has a satisfaction as though I've just eaten a feast, as though I've just had a celebration. And it's not, it's not disingenuous satisfaction. It's not surface level satisfaction. It's not superficial satisfaction. It's not, not that fake smile that we talked about last week. No, this is a satisfaction of the soul. This is a deep and abiding satisfaction. Do you know one of the ways that the wilderness clarifies the priorities of your life is that it teaches you what actually satisfies you? You realize that? In other words... Nobody is lost in the midst of the desert at night worried about what logo is on their shirt. Nobody is lost in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of the desert, in the nighttime with all of the predators and, a, and an army closing in and worried about what model year car they're driving. They're not worried about what their address is. They're not worried about what their degrees on the wall are or what they aren't. They aren't worried about what people on Facebook think of them. They aren't worried about uh, getting the approval of their peer groups because none of those things matter. None of those things satisfy. None of those things are significant. There's somebody that's alone in the wilderness, someone that, that has been brought to the end of themselves, someone who's in the desert at night, you know what they want? They want a drink of water. That's what matters. They want protection. Refuge, companionship, that's what matters. They want a meal, that's what matters. So what David says is, here I have, I've lost everything. I've lost all the things that matter to me. I've lost family. I've lost kingdom. I've lost country. I've lost, I've lost my throne. I've lost all of those things. But none of those things are the longing of my soul. None of those things are the things that actually satisfy me. I've been brought to the end of myself and clarified for me in the wilderness is that what I need is God. That God is the satisfaction of my soul. That God is the one that quenches me. 
That God is the one who is the feast that will enable me not just to make it, but to be joyful here, rejoicing in the wilderness. So what David does, finding himself in the wilderness, is what you can do. He begins to aim his thoughts at God. He begins to aim his thoughts at God. This is where, notice where I get this. So he says, remember you, and then he says, meditate on you. What, is, what are those things have in common? They're intentional, right? They're intentional. That for David, he can sit there and he can focus on all of his troubles and he can focus on the fact that he's lost so much and he can focus on the hardships that he's, he's dealing with and he can focus on the obstacles that he's facing. He, he can focus on all of that stuff. But David says, no, what, instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to aim my mind away from my worries. I'm going to aim my mind away from my hardships. I'm going to aim my mind away from all of the losses that I have. And I'm going to aim my mind intentionally focused, concentrated on the Lord. I'm going to focus on him because, because if you focus on God, if you aim your thoughts intentionally upon the Lord, and that's what remembering is, right? It's, it's focusing yourself. It's meditating. It's, it's mulling over it time and again, intentionally bringing the thoughts of the scripture, the thoughts of God's word, the thoughts of his promise, the thoughts of experience, is bringing them to your mind over and over again. So, so I'm going I'm to aim my thoughts because if I aim my thoughts at God, I can be satisfied no matter what else is going on in my life. But you know what? The opposite is true. And this is where many of you are probably living today. That, that what you have found out is that in your life, essentially everything else is going smooth. If you were somebody from the outside looking in, you would say that your life is good and yet you are miserable because if you aim your thoughts at anything other than God, it doesn't matter how good your life is, it won't be satisfying. It won't be pleasing. And now David's not just aiming his thoughts, though. He's aiming his thoughts at a particular idea of God's love. He's aiming his thoughts at a particular reality of God's love. And, he's, and it's this, that God's love is active. That God's love is active. And here's what I mean by that. God's love is not just an idea. God's love is not just a philosophy. God's not love is not just a concept. It's not just, just something that we sing songs about or we, we stay in the nebulous and have this abstract concept of what it means. God's love is in the here and now. God's love is active for real people living in a real world. That God's love is as real as God is. In fact, this is what Jesus verifies for us, isn't it? Do you know who Jesus was? Jesus was God's love born into the world. Jesus was God's love born into the world. Jesus was God's love clothed in flesh. Jesus was God's, is God's love here in the real world, in the here and now coming, that he might substitute for us. And so there's some particular thoughts about God's love that he's, he's, that he's aiming his mind at, that he's intentionally meditating on. The first thing that you'll notice is that he remembers that God's love has delivered him. He remembers that God's love has delivered him. If you'll look at verse 7 there, you'll notice that he says, For you have been my help. You know what another way to say that is? For you have been my help, for you have loved me 
actively. You have proven yourself helpful. You have proven yourself to protect me. You have proven yourself in my life that you will show up time and again, that you will always come through for me, that you have proven that your love is active in my real life. See, David had these experiences with God, right? David had experiences in his life that reinforced his trust, the trustworthiness of God. David had real experiences in his life that let him know that God was present and that God was willing and that God was able and that God was concerned for him. You can think about Goliath, right? Here's a little shepherd boy standing before this great mighty warrior with nothing but five smooth stones and a sling. And God slays the giant. You can think about Saul. Saul's pursuing him. And he's, he's running him up into the mountains. And God has already anointed David as the king of Israel. And he has not yet come. or He's already set David aside as the king of Israel. But he's not yet ascended the throne. And there is Saul, God's anointed man, pursuing David into the wilderness. But what, is God, what does David learn? That God is a high place. He is a stronghold. He is a refuge in whom David can can trust in whom David can hide himself but it wasn't just while David was being pursued it wasn't just when David was facing things that he had not brought into his life he learned this with Bathsheba did he not he learned this with Bathsheba there was David and he had sinned against God and you know what David understood that he deserved death David understood that in fact, it costs him his son. And here he is understanding that, that, he, that he deserves the death that has been brought upon God, the, the loss of everything, including his life. And God spares him and God pardons him and God continues to work through him. And so David had experiences in his life that verified and validated that God's love was active for him. And I bet you do too. I bet you do too. And it works in our lives the way a photograph works for us. You know, one of the things that I find to be true is what a photograph does is a photograph can serve to reset our hearts. Have you ever, have you ever found that? Here, here's what I mean. You can be in a fight. I mean, knock down, drag out, getting nasty. You don't want none of the church folk to know about it. Fight with your husband or your wife. I mean, you're throwing stuff, talking stuff, you know, making promises, making threats. You're doing the whole thing, right? And both of you kind of just go to your corners and you're seething. And then all of a sudden you're scrolling through your phone and you go to a date night, right? Where you were together. One of those rare times where you're able to get away from the kids and get away from the grandkids and get away from all the responsibilities and just, just be with your man or just be with your husband. And then all of a sudden what happens? You remember, don't you? You remember. And it puts in perspective how ridiculous it is that you're at each other the way that you are. You go to a vacation from the Grand Canyon and there you are with your arm around the one and you can't imagine anybody else being in that spot. And you've been so mad and you've been so irrational. But in an instant, your heart resets because you see the photograph. You have, you have verification, validation in your life that that is your man or that is your woman, that is your significant other. You can have a horrible experience at work. You can be unsure that this time next week you'll even still be employed. Your boss is breathing down your neck. Your company is on the edge of going belly up. You don't really know that your line is going to be continued. 
and you're stressed to the max and you're overwhelmed with work and it's like you can't break away from it. But then at lunch, at lunch, you, your eyes come across the, the wallpaper on your phone and it's your three babies. And you see their smiles and there they are standing with dad on that camping trip that you took them on. And all of a sudden what happens? Your priorities are refocused. Your heart is recalibrated. You're reset. Suddenly, suddenly, all the problems at work seem smaller. Suddenly, you remember why you provide the livelihood that you do, why you endure the things that you do. Suddenly, your mood shifts, your perspective shifts, your attitude shifts. Brothers and sisters, the experiences that you have had in your life of God's active love serve as a photograph to reset your heart so that you can be certain that he is there. So that you can have a reset for your attitude, a reset for your perspective, a reset for where you're going. Because now you can remember, he has been in my life. He has shown up. He has taken care of me. So certainly he will again. So he, so he aims his thoughts by remembering that God's love has delivered him. But that's not all. Not only does he, aim, does he remember, but he rejoices. He rejoices. And he rejoices specifically to realize that God's shadow is above him. Look at that next part of verse 7. It says, And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Now, Many of us don't often speak about the shadow of your wings, O Lord. And I think there, there are innumerable passages of Scripture. You think about Isaiah 40 that talk about the shadow of the wings, right? And you might be, that illustration may be lost on you a little bit. And it's, it's an allusion to like an eagle, right? So, so you have the little eaglets and they're in the nest. And the eaglets in the nest are incredibly vulnerable and exposed, in, in fact, if left to themselves, they have really no hope. And so they will lay there and they will just cry and cry and cry. And if any threat comes in, they're essentially hopeless. They have nothing that they can do. You know what their hope is? Their hope is, is that their mom is in the nest with them. And they're towering over the eagles is the mom and, and, and uh, the eaglets is the mom and the mom is able to warm the eaglets and the mom is able, able to shelter the eaglets and the mom is able to protect and to defend and to provide for. And so there under the shadow of her wings, they're able to look up and know they're taken care of. They're able to see that right there in real life, their help is present. Their hope is there. And David says this is who God is for his children. That this is who God is for his children. That at any given moment, as a son or a daughter of God, you can look up and you can see his shadow. No matter what you're facing, no matter how afraid you are, no matter how exposed you feel, no matter how vulnerable you seem, that you are not exposed, you are not vulnerable, you will not be overcome, you will not do without, you will not remain in the exposure of the elements because there, hovering above you, is the shadow of the Lord. What does that mean? What, what, what are ways in which the shadow of God hovers over, over us? I think there's a few. So first, it's what we just talked about. It's our experiences with Him. 
They form part of the shadow of God hovering over us as we remember how God has supplied, as we remember how God has protected us and how God has defended us and how God has met our needs. Man, probably all of you have times in your life, like I think about Megan and I early on, and we were like, didn't know how any bill was going to get paid by the end of the month. I mean, you're talking about paycheck to paycheck. It didn't even, it was like, you know, way, it seemed like those paychecks, if they were a week apart, it felt like a year apart. Or if they were a month apart, it felt like 10 years apart, right? And yet I look back and I think, you know what happened? Every single thing we needed, we had. Every single need was met. Every single meal was there. And so here we are and we have the experiences of God. And not only do we have the experiences of God, but we have God's promises to us. They form the shadow. That, that God, through his experiences, has verified and validated that he's going to come through on his promises. That, that when God says that he will never leave you or forsake you, look up and see the shadow, man. When, when God says that all things are going to work together for good, have they not always already? Can you not already see in past wilderness experiences how God's love for you has been clarified, how your love for him has matured and how it has grown? Can you not already see that that? The hope of the resurrection is the promise of the return that one day all the tears are going to be wiped from your eyes. And so here we are living with our experiences, but at the same time, simultaneously living in those promises. But I think there's, a, there's another one for the life of the believer, and it is the Spirit of God dwelling in us. That the Spirit, Romans 8 says this, that the Spirit of God testifies to, the, to your spirit that you are a child of God. That the Spirit of God dwells with you. In other words, you know what the Spirit does? The Spirit reminds you of the experiences of God's faithfulness. The Spirit proclaims and declares to you the promises of God. The Spirit of God takes your salvation and applies it to your heart. The Spirit of God is constantly reminding you, look up, you're not alone. Look up and see the shadow, you're not by yourself. Look up and see the hand of God. Look back and see the faithfulness of God. Look ahead and see the assurances of God. Look up and see that God has not forsaken you and God has not abandoned you because you are a child of the living God. You see... You can rejoice in the wilderness when you are resting in the Father. You can rejoice in the wilderness when you are resting in the Father. And that's what he says. He says, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for what? Joy. He's there in the wilderness. He's there having lost everything. He's there at the bottom of the barrel, at the end of his rope. And he's even here at the end of my rope, experiencing loss and grief and hardship and betrayal. I can sing for joy. I can sing for joy. That the picture here is a, a lost child who's finally found the arms of his father. It's a starving son that's come home from war and has finally found the security of his father's house. That now he can sing. Now he can declare. Now he can rejoice because he is resting with his father. I don't know where you're at right now. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what's scaring you, what's keeping you awake at night. But can I just remind you of what the Spirit is declaring to your own spirit at this very moment? You are a child of the living God. Look up and see the shadow of your Father. Look up and see the shadow of your help. Look up and see the shadow of your defender. Look up. There's another way that he aims our thoughts at the active love of God. 
Notice what he says. He says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. My love clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. In other words, he, he, he clings to the hand of the Father which steadies him. He clings to the hand of the Father which steadies him. All right, so if you look at right hand, when he, when he says right hand, there's usually two different things that come into mind there. Right hand is on one hand, the hand of strength. It's the hand that, that is able to fight. It is the hand that is able to uphold you. It is the hand that is, that is able to, to fight off those that might come against you. It is the hand that is able to secure you and, and to keep you in its grasp. But the right hand is, on the other hand, the hand of friendship. That, in other words, it is the hand that is able, and it is the hand that is willing. The hand that is reached out to you, not withheld, the hand that is extended, not withdrawn. The hand that wants to be active in your life. And so what David says, he says, I cling to him. In other words, th- this is the same word from Genesis chapter 2 when he says, uh, a, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast or cling to his wife. In other words, it is to fasten himself. To this wife. And here the idea of David is David taking his hands and his arms and his legs and wrapping them around his dad, wrapping them around the heavenly father, clinging to him with everything that he has. But the hope, the hope that David has is not how firmly he clings to the father, but how firmly the father clings to David. I think about a few weeks ago, I took the girls on a little camping trip before I had the ankle surgery. And we went up to Pine Glen. And if you've ever been to Pine Glen, you'll know that as you walk on the Penhody there, the Penhody gets, it gets pretty steep right there on, on the edge of, of the bank. And it was right at dusk and it started getting dark. And Gracie, man, she's always just way out ahead, you know, doing her Gracie Kate thing, never slowing down or whatever. But I noticed that as it got dark, And as the trail got steep and we were heading back, that Sarah walked up behind me and she slipped her little hand inside of my hand. And I thought, well, man, that that is, you know, you know, those kind of things that just warm up your dad your daddy heart. Like, she just wants her dad right now. She just wants her dad. And so little Sarah had had come and she'd walked up behind me in the dark on the edge of the steep bank and she had slipped her hand right inside her daddy's hand, and so I'm holding her hand. And then she trips over a root and she falls. And, and when she falls, she panics and she lets go of everything. But you know what? She didn't fall. She didn't fall down. She didn't roll down the bank. She let go, but she still was held strong. Why? Because my grip of Sarah was far more strong than her grip of me. And so even when she fell, even though she thought she was clinging to me, even though she thought she was holding fast to me, there I was actually the one holding on to her so that when she stumbled and when she tripped in the middle of the dark, on the edge of the bank, she did not fall. She was held fast. That's the picture that David is painting here. He's slipped his hand inside the hand of the Father, a hand that is extended, a hand that has been held out, a hand that is willing. But what he found out was that that hand wasn't just able, that hand was willing. That hand was willing and just uphold him no matter how he stumbled, no matter how he fell, no matter what he was facing. 
this morning, this morning, if you find yourself in the wilderness, if you find yourself over, overwhelmed, if you find yourself grief-stricken, if you find yourself sad and down and depressed, aim your thoughts at the Lord. Aim your thoughts at the Lord. But don't just aim them, aim them as though it's some abstract thought. Aim them at the active love of God in your life, through your experiences, through His promises, through His Spirit. Cling to His hand. And what you're going to find is that when you stumble and when you fall down, He is holding on to you. He is upholding your life. One other way that we see that God clarifies His love in the wilderness is we see that disappointing seasons hope in assuring love. Disappointing seasons hope in assuring love. No doubt David was in a disappointing season. He had lost everything. And I, and I, I, I remind you of what I told you last week, that really what we have in Psalm 63 at the season of life that David is almost at the end of his life is we really have the culmination of a hard season. That he had had a sin with Bathsheba, and after his sin with Bathsheba, he loses a son. And that's when Absalom rebels, and he loses four children over the course of that season. And never again is, is his reign as, as peaceful and as joyful as it had once been. That here he is, and his life, really at the, end, at the hands of his own making, was not what he wanted it to be. And can I promise you that's going to be your experience? That your life is not going to be the way that you want it to be. Your life is not going to go the way that you think it ought to go. It's not going to be that smooth. It's not going to always make sense. It's not, your, your, your life is, is not an equation that you're able to always add together and make sense of. Your, your, your life is almost always going to seem out of balance. It's going to be filled with disappointing seasons, in other words. Seasons that are just like David. But David, in the midst of this disappointing season, lived with assurance. He lived with assurance. Look, look at what he's, look at, notice what he does here. Six different times he talks, he references the future here. Six different times he references the future. But those who seek my, who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God and all who swear by him shall exult for the mouth of liars will be stopped. These things have not happened yet. They have not taken place yet. And here is David. And he is saying, I am assured, I am certain that these things will come to pass, that the future is assured for me because I have God's love in my life. And so he takes the assuring nature of God's love and the assuring nature of God's love steadies David's feet and holds David's feet to the ground. But there's a particular way that David thinks, and I think it would be helpful for us to think that way. That David's assurance was anchored in his anointing. That David's assurance was anchored in his anointing. This is where I get his anointing. Verse 11. Notice what it says. This is pretty remarkable, actually. But the king will re shall rejoice in God. Now, why is that? Why is that a, 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 a mention of his anointing here? Remember, at this point in David's life, it is incredibly uncertain that David is actually going to remain the king. 
David has lost the throne. The throne uh, Absalom has, has, has ascended the throne. Essentially, Absalom goes up on the roof of the palace and goes into ten of David's concubines to show that he has taken over the house of David. This is his kingdom. These are his people. This is his army. The men of Israel are praising him. But when David talks, David in the wilderness, David on the run, David under threat, David refers to himself as the king. Why? God had anointed him the king. God had set him aside as the king. Then, notice what else he says. For the mouth of liars will be stopped. How did Absalom win over the affection of his people? He had lied. In other words, he had pretended to be the anointed. He had pretended to be the anointed. And by pretending to be the anointed, he had come, across, come against the actual anointed. But guess what's happened when you come against the anointed of the Lord? When you come against the anointed of the Lord, you get the wrath of the Lord. And you will not stand. And so here is David, and he is saying, here is a man that is lying about being the anointed. Here is a man that is pretending as though he has got God's hand upon his life. And instead he has come against the anointed, and he will be stopped. He cannot stand. David's anointing is akin. David's anointing is akin to our adoption. In the Old Testament, you were anointed. In the New Testament, you are adopted. That David's confidence, David's assurance was that God had set him aside and laid his hand upon him. And that God's love, having laid his hand upon him, would not depart from him, but instead would see him through to the very end. Brothers and sisters, that is the doctrine of election. That is the hope of adoption. We get so tied up in philosophical arguments about free will and all of this. And most of it, to be honest with you, is silliness. You read the New Testament and you want to know what the New Testament has to say about election and about adoption? It, it has to say this, your dad is bigger than everybody else and your dad is richer than everybody else and your dad is more willing than everybody else and your dad is stronger than everybody else and your dad is more merciful than everybody else and your dad is more gracious than everybody else and your dad is with you. You are the chosen of God, so go ahead and move on. That the doctrine of election, the doctrine of adoption in the New Testament is about the encouragement of the church. It's about the boldness of the church. It's about the courage of the church. It's about the ability to go in and face anything because my God has chosen me and he is with me. You don't have to get tied up in all the other silliness. Brothers and sisters, knowing that, knowing that, what can you not face? What can you not face? If your, God, if your dad is with you and he is bigger than everybody else and stronger than everybody else and mightier than everybody else and, and kinder than everybody else and more loyal than everybody else and he is with you, what can you not face in your life? What hardships? What disappointments? What losses? What calls on your life? What, what, what is he asking you to do? Where is he asking you to go that you cannot do and you can and you will not go? 
You are a chosen son or a chosen daughter of the living God adopted into his household. Brothers and sisters, you can. You can. Not because you are strong, but because you have the assurance of his love in your life. It's really quite ironic, actually. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Revelation 21. Here at the end, I don't know that David could have fully even appreciated just how far into the future he was seeing. That, that David, when he writes verses 9 through 11, sure, he was writing about his circumstance in the here and now and what he was dealing with in the here and now. But he is also at the same time writing about experiences that you and I haven't even fully appreciated yet. About a future that has been promised to us by Jesus that when he returns and brings all of these things to be. I want us to read verses 6 through 8. And reading verse 6 through 8, I want you to, to compare it to what we've already read in Psalm 63 and see if some things stand out to you. It says in verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To what? The thirsty. I'm sorry. To the thirsty. I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Do you see how these passages parallel one another? Verse one, what does David say? He says, my soul is thirsty. But there is a day coming in which the spring of the water of life will come and be given to the thirsty without payment because Jesus has secured it. He says in verse one that you are my God. You are my God. I have betrayed the covenant. I have turned my back on you. I have abandoned you, but you have not abandoned me that you said that I would be your son and you would be my God. And here I am and it has been true. I am your son. Verse 11, he says, one day I know that the liar will be stopped. And here it is in verse eight, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. The justice of God will vindicate all of his children and all of those who have come against his adopted children. And so in this way, Jesus answers the questions that Psalm 63 raise in our lives. Jesus how will I survive this spiritual desert? The answer, and he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Jesus, how is it that I will traverse the lonely nights and the disappointing seasons? And he answers, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But Jesus what will happen if I try to build my paradise on earth in the way that Absalom did? But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. 
we are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.